Benvenuti a Welcome to Vox Europe. Bienvenue à Vox Europe. In a way, you need somebody to choose, and this is your interest groups. We'll also hear from Patricia Hogwood from the University of Westminster and from Ulrich Beck, who talks to us about how Europe can solve its own problems. All that coming up. This is Vox Europe, a podcast from the London School of Economics' European Politics and Policy blog. Our aim is to increase the public understanding of the social sciences across Europe and its neighbourhood. You can visit us at europe.eu. That's E-U-R-O-P-P dot E-U. Germany heads to the polls on the 22nd of September in elections that are being closely followed in Europe and beyond. Because of Germany's electoral system, which means no one party is likely to govern alone, speculation is rife as to which party will form the main part of a new coalition government. The incumbent centre-right party of Chancellor Angela Merkel, the Christian Democratic Union, or the centre-left Social Democratic Party, or SPD. With doubts over Greek debt and Italy's unsteady government, These elections are incredibly important to the future of the Eurozone, and a great deal of decision-making about debt restructuring and economic policies have been put off until after the dust settles. For much of the crisis, Angela Merkel, who is currently ahead in the polls, has been seen as the main force preventing the Euro from breaking up, and has aggressively pursued austerity policies at home and abroad in order to maintain economic confidence. With this in mind, I asked Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at the LSE's European Institute, Dr. Waltraud Schelkel, if the markets would consider a win by the current coalition led by Angela Merkel as a sign that it is business as usual for austerity in Europe. If the markets were rational, which is a big if, I think they should prefer a, a grand coalition because then something could move and we are a bit in a stalemate. And, you know, the markets feel very calm and everybody says, ah, yeah, you see, we slowly, slowly work ourselves out because it is true, unemployment rates in Portugal and so on have for the first time in a long time fallen and so on and so forth. But I do not trust this calm. It's the calm before us, another storm. And unfortunately, Merkel and her present coalition partners have talked themselves so much into a corner that really a big crisis has to happen before they can get out of it and then say, look, our hands are forced, as she has done throughout this euro crisis. With the Social Democrats as coalition partners, she could, in a way, blame them. And I think Steinbrück would be ready to take the blame for that because on Europe he feels relatively strongly. And so there would be a way out to move forward and be a bit more constructive, in particular on this construction side, the banking union. You need a resolution fund. You need something that allows to close down banks without everything ending up on the you know, government's, national government's books that are already overstretched. And so in that sense, I think the markets would be more uh, assured if there were a grand coalition than if there is 
renewal of the present coalition, but it is really the one open question that we have at the moment. It's hard to, to predict. This year has seen the establishment of the um, the alternative uh, for Deutschland anti-Euro party, uh, which has got a lot of people quite interested in sort of a quite a new direction. Do you think that Germans are turning against the euro, perhaps? Well, there is a strong scepticism in, in, in Germany, and this was always a constraint for Angela Merkel. And while I was myself very critical in the beginning of the euro area crisis, I do now appreciate more that she has actually played that rather well politically. If you think about other countries, what kind of Eurosceptic, in fact, Europhobic parties you have come up there. We have now this Alternative für Deutschland, which is basically uh, conservative economists and some backbenchers from the CDU and the CSU. Uh, I can't see a problem in that, and it's it's quite a, I mean, a quite a curious kind of of party. I happen to know the party uh, leader of that quite well, but look, we were at the same um, university for a while. Uh, he's a very decent conservative uh, bloke who has rejected all these populist advances that were made by right wing, fairly ex- extreme. Uh, people, so he doesn't sign up to an anti-immigration uh, um, agenda and all this. He is really concerned about the stability of the euro. And, you know, fair enough. Uh, this was always the story that was told. And so if you then have a Bundesbank that constantly uh, portrays any rescue measure that the ECB can come up with as the end of stability of the euro, then no wonder you have uh, some movement that must find articulation in a democracy. And so this is what the alternative for Deutschland is. A lot has, has been written in the last few months about things being on hold in Europe and in the Eurozone until the until Germany's elections. Do you think this is true? And, and what sort of things are being held up? And is that a good or a bad thing, do you think? What is held up is the fiscal taboo, as I would call it. In other words, the pooling of fiscal resources. I mean... You know, the amount of reforms that have been done, it's very hard to look through all the reforms to fiscal governance, economic governance they made. So governments have signed up to most intrusive fiscal surveillance. I think you have seen anywhere in the world, not even federal governments can do that normally with subnational entities. But they don't want to go over the, the, that, that bridge that you say you do some mutualization of public debt. It is in the European stability mechanism there is now a possibility to do that, namely to recapitalize uh, banks without the government in between, but directly from the ESM. Um, but this can only go forward if we have this single supervisory mechanism uh, in the banking union, and that governments have agreed to and they have also agreed to this should come about at the same time as a joint resolution mechanism. And the last bit is, of course, again, touches on the fiscal taboo. Because even if you have, as it is planned now, a a resolution mechanism that is eventually paid by the banks themselves, you always need a fiscal backstop or backup. Because in a crisis, usually you don't have enough in that fund. And it's only, so to speak, the open-ended 
fund of, of the taxpayers, collectivity of taxpayers, that can back that up without spooking the markets that the fund may run out. And this is, again, one of these bridges they don't want to cross, especially the Germans, the Dutch, the Finns, and so on. And that's where we are stuck now. Now, do I think that's a good or bad thing? I think this is unremittingly bad, because as long as this is not resolved, that you have some, not complete, but some debt neutralization, this crisis remains virulent. And we may be able to wing that economically, but not politically. I mean, these countries, you can have austerity programs and so on for three, four, five years, but not for 10 years. And this is what we're going to have if that's not resolved. So last year, you wrote about the dual politics of policymaking in, in Germany. Could you explain this a little bit more? And, you know, are we going to be seeing more of it in the run up to the elections? Or are we seeing it now? The dual politics I was talking about then was the first phase of the crisis. So 2008, when Lehman Brothers uh, folded in. And the Franco-German couple really got together, uh, each time having a summit before the Euro summit, uh, to tell the others what they had agreed on. But what you could see just in the national crisis management in France and Germany was what they said in public was almost the opposite of what they really did economically. So the French, in the usual etatist style, Sarkozy went out and we have to reinvent capitalism. That's no joke. He really said that. And the state must come back in a big way. The, we left too many things to the market. And he also blamed the commission for that, the EU, the, for that whole ideology. France had one of the smallest uh, stimulus programs of all. In the beginning, you could explain that with Spain, uh, France was actually looking as if it would do quite well, but it didn't. And even when then the revisions of the forecast came, they didn't come up with another problem. Germany first thought, oh, we don't need to do anything. This has to be left to the markets. We live in capitalism after all. Did only a very small cosmetic program when the euro area got together, or the European Union, in fact, and had this European recovery program, which was a summary of, of all possible national programs, and did something only to keep face uh, as a face-saving device for Sarkozy. But then when world trade collapsed and so on, they had two more programs. And actually, after Spain, Germany had the biggest stimulus programs. It had to do with the short-time work program and the beloved car industry in Germany, of course, was also a beneficiary. Although it worked through consumers rather than through the industry itself. That was the dual politics. My interpretation is, in a way, in a crisis like this, politics in hard times, as the famous Peter Gurevich book uh, has as its title, in a crisis like this, governments must, so to speak, fulfill the stereotypes, fulfill the expectations that the voters have. And that's always more etatist in France than in Germany. But this order-liberal rhetoric is different from what you then do as a policy because, in a way, you need somebody to choose, and this is your interest groups. And so no wonder it's, the, it's strong unions who wanted short-time work, big industry as well, and the car manufacturers, of course, are always first there. So you have then the policy measures themselves are highly determined by interest group politics. And I think something like that you must, given that work, I would expect we will see that as the crisis 
lingers on, shall we say, that publicly Merkel says we will not do fiscal union. First, all the surveillance toughening has to be in place. But I'm pretty sure they work already at the at the crisis resolution as is is and f- try to find ways through the banking union to have some debt mutualization if this would prove necessary in one of the big crises that we are still heading for. That was Walter Schelfel. While the consensus for many is that both the SPD and the CDU would pursue broadly similar policies to address the problems of the Eurozone, there are still differences in areas of domestic and foreign policy. Dr. Patricia Hogwood of the University of Westminster's Department of Politics and International Relations is an expert in German politics and public policy. She talked to my colleague Stuart Brown about the election campaign and both parties' platforms. He started by asking about the main policy differences between Angela Merkel and her rival for German Chancellor, Pierre Steinbuch. On foreign affairs, it's really quite hard to say where the differences would be. Now, Per Steinbrück has accused Angela Merkel of not being passionate about Europe. This is really quite unfair because she has revitalised Germany's relationships with Europe, the European Union, while she's been Chancellor. She has altered the balance of power, certainly within the European Union. Um, She's very quietly, almost imperceptibly, edged away from the Franco-German relationship, that plays that, that is less important now for Germany than it used to be, I would say. She's rebuilt relationships um, with America after these were very seriously dented by the SPD leader, um, Gerd Schröder, uh, in his election campaign of 2002 and during his term in office. So she's, she's, worked, um, she's worked hard in Europe. What she would like to do would be to see a free trade agreement between the EU and the US, That would, I think, be her next interest if she were to stay in power in Germany. In European policy, Per Steinbrück and the SPD would like to um, stimulate a little bit more growth. They'd like to move away from the kind of austerity programmes and solutions that um, Angela Merkel is is proposing for um, the Eurozone crisis, and they would quite like to supplement these, at least, with more growth-oriented and social justice programmes. So what has been the electoral response to the campaign so far? One interesting thing um, is that up to 45% of Green voters say they would prefer to see Angela Merkel stay in power. Now that might seem quite surprising because the Greens have always seen themselves as a radical party and a left-leaning party and when they've been in coalition it's been with the SPD rather than the CDU. But um, perhaps it's not so surprising really because... um, we, we know that the core electorate of the Greens overlaps considerably in terms of socio-demographic profile with that of the CDU. And uh, it is a factor in elections generally in the West that people tend to prefer candidates who replicate their own social background. They seem to think that a person with their own social background will invariably represent their interests. Sophisticated voters tend to offset this gut reaction with other considerations, but it seems to be present for all voters. So perhaps it's not so surprising. Um, The other thing we need to take into consideration is that most people prefer 
um, Angela Merkel as a candidate, um, they were asked a very interesting question, which is no direct relevance to the election. They were asked who they would support if the Chancellor candidates were elected directly by the public. 54% of people said they would choose Angela Merkel. Only 26% of people said they would choose Pierre Steinbrück. And in such a, a tight election, we're seeing a pattern of support coming out of the election polls, which suggests that the the current government of CDU-FDP, which is a centre-right bloc of um, Christian Democrats and, and Liberal Party, um, they're standing at about 45% of the vote. Uh, a block that critics are calling the opposition, consisting of SPD, um, Social Democratic Party, the Greens, and Die Linke, a more radical left party that formed um, as a result of uh, a split in the SPD and, and a merger with the former communists of East Germany. The, these parties haven't declared a formal coalition. They're not, not working together. Um, there are a lot of intra-party, um, pro- inter-party problems between them. But um, the critics are seeing them as an opposition bloc. They're sitting at 44%. Now, that gives both blocs a problem when it comes to coalition formation. What is the most likely coalition to emerge from the election? Well, I think, um, as it stands, what we're most likely to see is the one that nobody really likes, which is a grand coalition between um, the two major parties, the CDU and the SPD. Nobody really likes this because it um, guarantees there will be policy tensions throughout the term of office, uh, throughout the four-year period, um, or, or four-year electoral period that, that will follow. Um, also, it, it's, it doesn't sit very well in a democracy. You know, there's supposed to be alternation of government or potential for alternation of government in a democracy. If you take out the CDU and the SPD, there's no real potential for an alternative government in the system. And in the past, we've only seen two grand coalitions in the past, one quite early on um, in the post-war period and one um, fairly recently in the early 2000s, which was uh, headed by Angela Merkel. Um, During this period, people begin to flirt with um, more radical parties like the the far-right NPD, the National Party of Germany, and uh, Die Republikaner, the Republicans. Now, these are the two leading right-wing legal parties in Germany. They have to be legalized under German law to ensure they're on the right side of democracy. Um, they, they've uh, been quite successful sometimes at the land or regional level in Germany, but they've never broken through international politics. The fear is if we have another grand coalition, will this invite that step from regional politics to national politics. Um, There are actually quite a lot of hurdles that would speak against that. For example, the the two parties, they focus their campaigns in different parts of the country and they haven't been able to forge a merger. If they were to forge a merger, they'd be a lot stronger. But the odds are stacked against it. Um, Far-right parties across Europe tend to be fragmented parties rather than consolidated parties. So we're, we're not likely to see that, really. There is a chance that some of the other outlier parties in the system um, might, in the the next few weeks, have a surprise success. There's the Pirate Party, or the Piratenpartei in Germany. Now, maybe 2011, this party looked very likely to upset the, um, the balance of power in the parliamentary system. They looked as if they would be able to 
exceed the 5% threshold, which determines um, a, a share of the party votes under the election, very important for getting a significant presence in the Parliament. Um, but in 2012-2013, this party virtually imploded because of party in, infighting. Um, they had come out with quite grandiose claims they were going to reinvent politics. They're a single-issue party. They're really interested only in Internet freedom and digital security. Um, you would think that the NSA scandal that has been quite prominent in German politics recently, as it has in uh, British politics would have been a gift to them, but they weren't able to capitalise on it um, because of the party infighting, also because the, of the structures they'd put in place for their party. They wanted party members to be able to participate in policy making through online feedback. Um, this didn't come off. These, the online channels were used for trolling and for bullying. The two party leaders had to stand down. Um, the party is really in disarray and they haven't been able to capitalise on what really should have launched them into federal politics. That was Patricia Hogwood. Ulrich Beck is a world-renowned German sociologist and professor at the University of Munich and is most famous for his concept of the risk society. In his recent book, German Europe, he looks at the growing importance of the country in the EU and Europe and what he calls its accidental economic empire, which has led to massive differences between creditor and debtor countries. Given the seemingly existential questions around the continent's social, economic, and political future, I asked Ulrich Beck, how should Europe solve the problems it currently faces? We have to ask the big question, what is actually the purpose of the European Union? Is there any purpose? Why Europe? Why not the world? Uh, why not doing it alone in, in the UK or in, in, in Germany or in France or whatsoever? I would say four answers to this, to this, to the purpose. First, the European Union is about how enemies become neighbors in the background of the European history. The second narrative, the second purpose is now future-oriented. The first one was past-orientated, history-orientated. The second one is future-orientated and uh, related to globalization. And it's about how not to get lost in, in world politics. A post-European Britain, a post-European Germany, a post-European France, etc., etc., is a lost Britain, is a lost Germany, is a lost France. So actually, this was, would be the second. The third one would be that we really should not only think about a new Europe or more Europe or whatsoever. We have to think how the European nations have to change because they are actually part of, of the process. And I would say it is about redefining the national interest in European way. Europe is not an obstacle to to national sovereignty. I would say it is a necessary mean for improving national sovereignty. And you could put it the other way around. Nationalism now is the enemy of the nation, of the European nation. Because actually only in a European synthesis, synthesis there could be a prosperous, sovereign uh, UK, Germany, Britain and so on. And the force 
narrative is actually related to global risk. Modernity, as we can see it at the beginning of the 21st century, which has been distributed all over the world, is a suicidal project. Uh, it's really producing all kinds of basic problems, uh, climate change, financial crisis, etc., etc. Europe should take modernity back and uh, reinvent it. Reinventing modernity. This could be, I think, a, a specific purpose for Europe. I think those are part of a, let's say, a grand narrative of, of Europe. And one basic issue is is missing in, in the whole design. So far, we, we've thought about all those issues, we've thought about institutions, we've thought about law, economics, but we didn't ask how, what does uh, Europe or European Union mean for the individual? How does the, what, what, what gains the individual from the European project? And I, I would say there are three aspects. First of all, I think, and this is the experience of the younger European generation, more Europe is producing more freedom. It's not only moving uh, in Europe, uh, but it's at the same time recognizing the differences and opening up your own perspective and living in a space which is basically grounded on, on law. And the second issue is workers especially, but students as well, now confronted with a kind of existential uncertainty, which needs an answer. You know, we got half of the best educated generation in Spain and Greece doesn't have any perspective. And it, it, it isn't really picked up as, an, as a basic issue for Europe. So what we need is a, is a vision for a social Europe. A social Europe in the sense that actually the individual sees that there's not maybe social security, but it's less uncertainty. It does have a perspective of, of the people. And the third one is that actually we need to redefine uh, democracy bottom-up. We have to ask, is there, um, what does a Europe from below really mean? How could individuals being engaged in, in European projects, how could they gain from those projects? And uh, with Cohn-Bendit, with Daniel Cohn-Bendit, I um, made a manifesto, We Are Europe, arguing that actually we need a free year uh, for everybody, doing some kind of project in, in a different country with, with different Europeans in order to start a European civil society. That was Ulrich Beck. That's all for this episode of Vox Europe on the German elections. At the start of September, the LSE Public Policy Group launched a new sister blog for Europe, LSE USAP, American Politics and Policy. USAP's central mission is to increase the public understanding of social science in the context of American politics and policymaking. Our focus is broad-based and multidisciplinary, covering all aspects of governance, economics, politics, culture and society in the U.S., and in its continental neighbors, Canada and Mexico. For more information, go to usappblog.com. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley. For a full list of the music and sound used in this episode, visit our blog at europe.eu. I'm Chris Gilson. Thanks for listening.